Dale quoted so marvelously John 14. It's a, a precious passage, and it is one of the last words of Jesus. And I trust that you know that like last word speeches are really important. I've always been fascinated with battle line speeches. You know what I'm talking about? Think of a scene in a movie where the troops are all lined up and the opposing army is on the other, is on the other side of the field and the general like rides a horse, gives a speech. I've always been fascinated about that. Part of the reason is I studied rhetoric in college, so I'm just fascinated how words serve to move people. Like um, Edward Murrow, a U.S. journalist, said this about Winston Churchill, that he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. So on social media this week, I asked, what's your favorite battle line speech? And a number of you threw in some good ideas. There were a few really bad ideas. Um, (laughs) I settled on the speech from the Lord of the Rings series, The Return of the King, where King Aragon rallies his forces as they approach the Black Gate of Mordor. Here's what he says. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattering shields when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. And they all went into battle, and they all died. No, they didn't. I find um, speeches and talks like that to be fascinating because they're not only important, but they're also very clarifying. You, you, you talk about what's most important in moments like this. And in John 14, Jesus is not rallying his disciples to go into a physical battle, but he is trying to help them understand what is in front of them, and these are scary times. They need courage. They need hope. Our text is set in the last week of Jesus' life. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He has demonstrated what it's like to go low. He's washed their feet. He's told them that there's a betrayer in their midst. He's identified that Peter is going to deny him three times before the sun rises. And then Jesus drops sort of this bomb on them in verse 33 where he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He's going to leave them. And that creates all kinds of questions and an enormous number of concerns. And that is why Jesus gives his disciples these last words. And these last words are designed to be the things that believers hang on to in the gap between when Jesus leaves and when he returns. And this is a really important text because we live in that space between Jesus' departure and when he comes again. And so for every Christian, these last words of Jesus are really important because there are truths that you and I need to live in every single day if you're a follower of Christ because Jesus has not yet come back and life is full of trouble. This morning we're going to look at three concepts, three words. The word assurance, the word conviction, and the word power. And I want you to listen for each of these words, assurance, conviction, and power, because my guess is that every one of us needs one of those words today. 
And in fact, at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you to decide which of these three words are most applicable for you. Whether it's assurance, knowing that the promises of God are true. Whether it's conviction, believing that what the Bible says is worth not only believing in, but even bearing reproach and power. Believing that the mission of Jesus is still ongoing and we are a part of that glorious enterprise. So let's examine each of these three words. First, the word assurance. Jesus makes promises to his disciples in the first three verses regarding their future. He's leaving them, but here's the thing he wants them to know. It's the same thing that you need to know every single day if you're a follower of Jesus, and that is that there was purpose behind the departure of Jesus. He wants them to know, Jesus wants you to know, that there is a divine plan that is unfolding. God is on a mission to accomplish his aim And even though you can't put all the pieces together in your life as it relates to the specific things that are happening, there is an arc, a redemption plan that God is working out. This is one of the reasons why the Bible tells us what happens in the future. It is to provide you assurance that at the end of the day, the devil loses and Jesus wins. At the end of the day, cancer is defeated and all are healed. At the end of the day, for those who know Christ, they stand before the risen king and the rest of their lives, they bask in the glory of who Jesus is. Imagine if we didn't know that. It's it's so easy to just take that for granted, but imagine if the Bible didn't end with the smoke of history clearing and Jesus standing as the lone victor. Imagine instead if the Bible ended with a level of uncertainty as to what would happen. Consider if these words were in the book of Revelation. And no one knows the future or who will be victorious. The destiny of mankind hangs on a thread that blows in the wind. Choose a side and pray you choose correctly. Could you imagine? If your whole life was spent wondering, did I choose the right person? Did I I, I choose wisely? Thankfully, that's not the message of the Bible. Instead, the message of the Bible is, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's how the Bible ends. And the reason, well, if we're gonna clap for it, we gotta clap for it, so. You can clap in church. It's okay. You can say amen. It doesn't bother me. I'll just keep talking. You just keep clapping. It's all good. So just keep rolling. It's good. Jesus is trying to provide assurance and hope to these disciples. And so he says to them, look at your Bible. Let not your hearts be troubled. The idea is this. They are troubled. The, The word means distressed or disturbed or confused, even anxious or fearful. 
the, the setup of the original language would indicate that it's not that Jesus is saying, don't allow your hearts to even be troubled. It's not as though he's saying, don't allow yourself to be anxious. Instead, what Jesus is doing, he's recognizing that they are troubled and they are anxious. And he doesn't want their anxiety or their troubled state of their soul to prevent them from faithfully following Jesus. You see, this is important because there's some Christians who think that if they feel any level of trouble, that they're subpar Christians. You are not a subpar Christian if you feel troubled. In fact, sometimes people should feel troubled. You ever ran into someone who's like, they're so optimistic, they're scary? You're like, bro, man, you should be afraid of that one, man. That's scary. He's like, no, it's good. Like, no, no, it's not good, right? Or if you're a parent, you're raising boys, I mean, one of the things you have to drill into them is, man, you should be more scared of jumping off that bridge than what you are, right? My wife has famously said it's a miracle that any boy lives to age 11. It's so true. Those of you in the medical industry, you're welcome for how I've supported your livelihoods over the last number of years. There's things that you should be troubled about, and yet some Christians really think that to be troubled is to not be faithful. And yet Jesus is troubled in chapter 13 and verse 21. He's commanding them to not allow their trouble to prevent them from being faithful. That should be enormously encouraging for some of you who are here today and you feel troubled. And you've come to church and you're gonna leave a little less troubled, but what's gonna happen is you're actually gonna put beside your trouble your belief in Jesus and this morning you've come to church believing one thing, you're gonna leave believing two things. Yes, I'm troubled, but Jesus is alive. Yes, this is hard, but God is good. Yes, I'm fearful, but I can trust in Jesus. You see, Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. These disciples are to be in their troubledness to believe. They are to believe as they battle their discouragement and their anxiety. Some of us here wrestle more with anxiety than others. Some feel discouraged more easily than others. And that may just be the way that you are wired. Maybe something about your background or even just kind of how you're physically made or in terms of your family upbringing. And the point is, is that you can still faithfully follow Jesus. Just don't allow your anxiety or your trouble to be the only identity in your life. Instead, take that and put the identity of Jesus right next to it. Jesus says, don't be troubled. Rather, don't allow your trouble to eclipse your belief. He then says something that's familiar in verse two. If you've gone to a funeral service, you've probably heard this text read, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So what Jesus is saying is he's using a metaphor here for fellowship with the Father, so he uses a house. And he says, my Father has a house, and in that house are rooms, and I got a room for you. The idea is the place that I'm going, the intimacy that I'm going to experience, the oneness that I will have with the Father, you are going to experience as well. Jesus' departure will actually be advantageous for them. When we get to John 17, I think it's the first part of next year, we'll hear Jesus' prayer for his disciples but here he tells them that he's leaving in order to prepare for their future. He assures them that they're going to be in the Father's house. 
They're going to be in the dwelling place of God where Jesus is, they're going to be. Some of you who maybe grew up with an older translation, you can hardly hear this verse without hearing the word mansion in it. And those of you who are Southern Gospel aficionados, you can hardly even bear to not start singing, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. Where's the word mansion come from in some of the older translations? Well, because the Latin word for dwell or remain is the word mansio, and that made its way into translations where it says, in my father's house are many mansions. So look, I don't, I don't know, don't make too much of like, oh, so I have a mansion within a house, or maybe your idea is a golf course, you know, in glory, or I don't know, some big Nintendo thing that you're playing for the rest of your life. Or maybe it's just a big banquet, pepperoni pizza forever. I don't, know, I don't know what your thing is. But here's what I know. Jesus is telling his disciples that they'll be where he is. And friends, we can't imagine how glorious that's going to be. For him to say, in my father's house are many rooms, he's telling them that there is a reunification that is planned. He's leaving, but he's going in order to guarantee their future. Where he's going, they're going to follow. He's not abandoning them, but rather his leaving them is part of a bigger divine plan. And in the interim, they have to trust him. So important, because I'm telling you, when you go through hardship or difficulty, there's a temptation to believe God has abandoned me. He's left me. This doesn't fit with his plan. There's no way this is going to work out for good. Disciples of Jesus have always had to wrestle with that. And so what do you do in those seasons? You do exactly what Jesus says here. You believe in him. You believe, you believe, you believe. Some of you need to be reminded of this today. Because perhaps all of last week you thought more about what isn't right in your life than banking your life on what God has promised to be true. Or maybe you find yourself emotionally dependent on circumstances, believing that you'll be able to be okay if your circumstances change, and that's how you faithfully follow Jesus. If my marriage could just change, or my job thing, or my kid thing, or my health thing, or my financial thing, if that changes, then I can be faithful. And the fact of the matter is, is you need to hear today that in the midst of the troubled realities of a world that is not perfect and life that often goes wrong, Jesus is still trustworthy. Do you believe that? Perhaps you've given into despair this week because you've come to believe just momentarily that what the Bible says isn't true. Or maybe it's just been helpful. Already today, you're here in church, you came today, you woke up despairing, you woke up discouraged, but you made a really significant decision to come and to gather in God's, help, God's house so that you can be reminded of what it is that you believed so that you can leave here believing again. You may be here, you're not yet a Christian. And friend, you know, this text really is a great moment for you to ask yourself, when the bottom falls out in my life, what am I gonna hope in? Because like that verse that I kinda made up in the Bible about who knows who wins and how life turns out, like I would imagine there's a number of you, like that's how you look at the world. You're not really sure if the claims of Christ are right, you're not sure if the Bible is true, and that's all 
fine and good until your life falls apart. And then the question is, what do you believe in then? So the message of the gospel, the hope, is that we've placed our trust in Christ. And while Christians aren't perfect, the one thing we do know is that Jesus is trustworthy. A Christian places his or her hope in Christ, and we live through assurance. Here's the second thing, and that is that disciples of Jesus also live with a firm conviction. Look at verse 3. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. What follows in this text is one of the core doctrines of Christianity. And in fact, what I'm going to share with you in verse 6 is actually a text that has led to the persecution and the killing of Christians. I'll explain that in a moment. First, in verse 3, Jesus simply tells the disciples that they know where he is going. By now, given what Jesus has taught them and even what he has just previously said, they should know that the path that Jesus is on, and yet it is still not clear to them. So Thomas speaks up, verse 5. He says, Lord, we do, know, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way. I hope you resonate with Thomas. Thomas has a mindset that have, many of us have, which is this. If I don't know the location, how do I know the path? Or to think of it this way, Thomas can't get over the fact that he doesn't know the location or the place, and he misses that the person standing right in front of him is actually the solution to his problem or the answer to his question. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And apparently, Thomas didn't hear Jesus say, believe in me. So what happens here is that Thomas misses the sufficiency of Jesus because he doesn't know the location of where he's going. This happens all the time to Christians. I gotta know how this fits in my life and you forget that God's giving you grace right now for what you're dealing with. You're so focused on putting all the pieces together or how the plan is all fitting together that you don't incorporate the, the, the awe and wonder of what it means that Jesus is giving you grace to endure. So you don't see Jesus in front of you. All you see is the things that you want to see that you can't see. So you're more, fo you're more focused on what you don't know than what you do know. And what Jesus is saying here is, I, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is telling Thomas that he is the one who is sufficient for everything that Thomas would need. That In effect, Jesus is the very path that he's looking for. That he, Jesus, is the full revelation of the Father. In him is life. Jesus is everything. A medieval theologian named Thomas Akempis in a book called The Imitation of Christ says this, 
He puts these words in Jesus' mouth, follow thou me, I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straight way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. That's Jesus. Troubled hearts need to be reminded about the conviction of the sufficiency of Jesus. Friend, can I just remind you that you may not know what's going to happen with your cancer diagnosis, but you can be reassured over and over and over that Jesus has got you. You may not know how the difficulties that are, you're walking through in your marriage are going to turn out, but I promise you, Jesus is walking with you every step of the way. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus makes a very definitive statement. When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's making a very exclusive statement. This is the text that I mentioned earlier that has likely caused more Christians to be persecuted and executed than maybe any other text in the Bible. You see, in in the midst of a culture that is supposed to have tolerance, The one thing that our culture does not have tolerance for is exclusive claims. Meaning, when the Bible says there is no salvation apart from Jesus, it means that Jesus is the only one who can grant you forgiveness. So, all roads of religion do not lead to the same place. I want to say this as compassionately as I can, but friends, there there is not multiple pathways to reconciliation with God. Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, secular humanism, name whatever religious system you want. There may be some overlaps with one another, maybe overlaps with Christianity, but Jesus makes a very critical claim. No one comes to the Father except through him. Why? Why why does no other pathway work? Because no one else was able to provide a sufficient sacrifice for sins. No one was able to be fully God and fully man. No one else died and rose again. And so what that means today, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that you must trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins because he is the only way for you to be reconciled to God. That's why John wrote this entire gospel. His aim is to convince you of this one singular point, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus is the exclusive way that people are made right with God. Unfortunately, hell is going to be populated with millions of people who made the mistake of thinking that all roads lead to God. And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Church, that means that eventually, at some point in time, when you talk to a person about what you believe, you have to get here. You can't avoid this. Now hear me, you need to contextualize it in relationship. You need to be sure the person understands your heart. You need to be a gracious, winsome person. But eventually, you have to say, 
No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And when there's pushback for that exclusive claim, you need to know that the conviction that it's true must override the fear of what they think or what might happen. Jesus is the exclusive pathway to the Father. He tells his disciples, not only is he the path, but that he also is the full revelation of what God is like. He says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, when you see me, you see the Father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. This must have been a disappointing moment. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What's he saying here? He's saying that you gotta know who I am. You have to have conviction. You gotta believe. Not just in a system, you gotta believe in this person, you gotta believe in me, Thomas. And I want you to know, especially if you're an older Christian, like you've known what it means to be a Christ follower for a lot of years, just don't forget that the central figure in your religious system is a person named Jesus. It's not just that you believe doctrine, and you should believe doctrine. It's not that you know the Bible, you should know the Bible, but it means at the end of the day, this whole thing is about a person named Jesus who rescued us from our sins, who one day is gonna come back, and we're gonna live with him forever, and we're gonna see him, we're gonna touch him, we're gonna feel him, we're gonna know him, we're gonna be with him, and there'll be no more pain, no more sin, no more trials. We'll be in Jesus' presence forever as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So just don't be a Christian who isn't into Jesus. <laughs> Can't do that. Be like if I was into marriage, but not into my wife, Sarah. Like I like marriage, my wife, she's okay. You know I mean? You can't do that, it's awful, right? If you're into Christianity, if you're into the Bible, you're into Jesus. Everything you need to believe is found in him. So Christianity isn't about joining a religion. It's not about merely a set of truths. It's about a person, a person who will never fail you. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He died in 155 AD. He was a disciple of the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. At age 86, he was arrested and hauled before the city proconsul and on threat of death told to renounce Christ. And here's what Polycarp said. 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And they killed him. And then he met Jesus. And that's the good news. Bring it on, Smyrna. I'm not going to blaspheme Jesus because in like 15 seconds I'm going to see him in all that he is. That's the power of the gospel. 
It means in the midst of trial and difficulty, you know that God's going to give you grace. In the midst of hardship or temptation, that Jesus can help you. And it means even if something were to happen that you were to die, you're immediately in the presence of Jesus. So for the Christian, the ark of the plan of God in your life is all winning because of Christ's victory. So assurance, conviction, here's the third word, it's the word power. Look at verses 12 to 14. Jesus continues, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is saying here that these disciples are going to do the works of Jesus, now listen, they're not going to out-miracle him. Instead, what he's promising is an extension of his mission and his ministry. The whole reason why the Holy Spirit came and the reason why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit is in order to be with them and to be with us. In John 16, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the helper, the Holy Spirit to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit has come in order to facilitate the ongoing movement of Christ in the world. Jesus isn't done moving, and you and I are a part of that movement. He sends us the Spirit in order to bring conviction and righteousness and judgment. Can I ask you, did you think at all about the Holy Spirit last week? The personal presence of Christ dwelling within you, empowering your gifts, granting you courage, guiding your words, providing divine opportunities. It is the Spirit who, when you speak, brings conviction of sin. It is the Spirit who helps us to fulfill the ministry of Jesus in the world. I love the song we sang before um, in the middle of our service where the, the church of Christ was born and the Spirit lit the flame. Yes, Jesus isn't done. And our church is just one example of the ways in which the gates of hell are being taken down by the advancement of the church. And then he tells the disciples to pray. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here is the power to pray and ask for Jesus to intervene. When you look at this text, do you hear the word anything really strongly? If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Some people might take this to mean you can just ask Jesus for whatever you want and he guarantees that he'll make it happen. That's not what's being promised here. In fact, I don't think the word anything is the word that you should focus on, but instead, let me read the verse differently and notice what I emphasize. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I 
will do it. What's Jesus promising here? He's promising that he's gonna remain engaged in the disciples' lives. He's leaving them, but he's always going to be with them. And when they pray, their prayers are coming to him. And Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, is the one who's going to intervene on their behalf. He is not guaranteeing that everything they ask, he's going to fulfill with a yes, but rather he's saying, no matter what you go through, through every fire and trial, every temptation, every difficulty, every time you pray, help me, Jesus is there saying, I hear you and I am. Every time you say, Jesus, will you give me strength and grace? He says, yes, I will, and he does. It is Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who personally intervenes in the midst of all of our difficulties and all of our trials. Listen, friend, there is not one thing happening in your life that is greater or more powerful or more significant than the resurrected son who bought you and purchased you and who hears you as you pray. That's the promise. And what disciples need is the power to advance and the power that Jesus provides. So when you think of what it means to be a disciple of these three words, which one do you need today? Do you need assurance? Are you weary-hearted, and do you just need to be reminded that God's promises can be trusted in and that Jesus has got this? Do you need, for a renewed level of conviction, the courage to trust Christ alone and bear reproach? Do you need for Jesus to help you today with a, a level of boldness to say, this is what the Bible says, and I'm gonna say it carefully, I'm gonna say it compassionately, but if you believe this and you die, it's not going to be good. And I love you too much to not tell you that. Do you need power, confidence in prayer, and boldness that there's a mission to fulfill? This morning as we conclude, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep your eye on one of those Three, and in a moment I'm gonna pray for those of you that fit the need of those three words. And as I pray over you, if it's assurance, I want you to raise your hand just right where you are, and I'm gonna pray over you. And as I continue to pray about conviction, if that's where your need is, you raise your hand. And this is just a moment for you to say, yes, Lord, this is what I need today, or power as I pray over you for you to raise your hand and say, I need God to help me Pray and to live with boldness, believing that Jesus can help me. So as I pray, you raise your hand, depending upon which of these three fit. Lord, today, for those who need assurance, raise your hand if you need assurance. Lift it high, keep it there. Who struggle with trusting in your promises in light of the hardships that they are walking through, would you, God, today, help their hearts to be anchored in the truth of who you are and what you have said. Lord, we thank you that your promises are true even when life is hard. We thank you that you are faithful even when we don't understand. So God, give us assurance that these promises can be trusted. Lord, for those today who need conviction, raise your hand if you need conviction, 
Lord, I need conviction to believe that the Bible not just is true, but even if it results in bearing reproach at work or with a friend, Lord, give me courage to represent you well in the world. Give me opportunities to speak with compassion but with clarity. And Father, for those today who need power, raise your hand if you need power, confidence in prayer to seek you and believe that you hear and you answer and boldness to act because we have a mission to fulfill. Oh Lord, would you grant these brothers and sisters the confident assurance and conviction that power and prayer and in their words and actions can come from you, Jesus. So Lord, thank you that in this upper room with this huddled group of troubled disciples that there is encouragement not only for them but also for us. Lord Jesus, these last and final words are helpful when our hearts are troubled. And so we grant, ask you to grant us grace to be faithful disciples in troubled times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.